Or how many simply just want to say amen for this worship experience we've had thus far today? I have been blessed and ministered to by every aspect in the worship service, the musicians, the choir, the testimonies of the children's story, made me a little more afraid of water. I just wanted to give an extra little thanks to, to the worship team in that song, The Blessing. That really ministered to me in a personal way, so thank you. Appreciate that. Well, why don't we start off with a word of prayer? Let's bow our heads as we dig into the Bible today. Father, we're so grateful for church. We're so grateful for the privilege and the opportunity to be together. Some are gathered together online. Some are gathered together physically here, and we don't take that for granted. So as we are together, and as your word is open and as the Bible is taught today, Father, I just pray in the name of Jesus, please continue to just move into this sanctuary, continue to move and touch the hundreds of people that are watching, eventually thousands of people watching online. And we just pray that you do a special work today because we do ask and pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. So do you ever feel like you're living a life that you did not quite expect or plan for? Anybody ever felt like that? In other words, when you were younger and you thought about your future life, somehow you just imagined you thought it would end up a little bit different. Look, maybe for you, everything has been great. You bought Apple stock at 25 cents. You bought Bitcoin when it was at 10 cents. Nobody ever broke up with you. You got accepted to every program that you applied for. You achieved the career that you always wanted to get to. You never had a miscarriage. You never had any significant sickness in your life. You don't know anybody. There's nobody in your family that has experienced any death. If that's you, yeah, praise God. I'm not mad at you. Hallelujah. I give God thanks for that. But I want to speak for a few moments today to the others. To those that are maybe living lives that they didn't quite expect to live. For example, I want to tell you about a family in this community and they gave me permission to share these elements of their stories. Mom, dad, two kids. And the father has been experiencing what I can only describe as a Job-like amount of suffering. About a year and a half ago, a year ago, he began experiencing some really painful, debilitating symptoms in his body. Got checked out by local doctors, ended up going to Mayo Clinic, some of the best doctors in America, and they can't, to this day, quite pinpoint exactly what he has. As a result of an elusive diagnosis, they are having trouble helping him to manage his pain, and so they're hesitant to prescribe the kind of pain medicine that he needs. He's lost about 75 pounds. He's thin. Sometimes he says, Rodley, that the only thing I can do is just try to not move 
as I cry out to God in my pain. Because even moving elicits more pain. And the mom, she's doing everything that she can to just minister to him and take care of him and take care of their kids and also provide for the home. You know, I can't imagine that if five years ago, if they would have known that they would be on this particular path, that they would have said, Bob, actually, I'll take what's behind door number two, please and thank you. Right? And I confess to you in my own life, some of you may know that three years ago, this coming December, unexpectedly lost my sister. And I want to put something on the screen for you here. Maybe you've seen this before. If you haven't, great. But maybe you've Googled it. If you've been wondering how this works. We've got psychologists in our community, psychiatrists. And I know this doesn't work necessarily in a linear format. Can I be really honest with you how it's worked out for me? I went to anger, and I don't think I ever left. It's true. Went to anger. I think I'm still there. Don't worry. I'm not violent. I think. I don't want to hurt anybody. I don't want to hurt myself. But I'm angry. Matthew 13. Angry against the enemy that has done this. Do you ever feel like you're living a life that you didn't expect to live? To be living? I didn't expect to lose my sister in her early 40s. But I want to share with you a promise. That has made a big difference for me. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 3. Please. Turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3. It's a, it's a promise. It's a theological framework. That I think will bless you. In the name of Jesus. Alright. Genesis chapter 3. There's Adam and Eve. You know the story well. In Genesis chapter 2 verse 8. God says that he planted a garden. And then in Genesis 2, verse 15, it says that God then presented this garden to Adam, subsequently to Eve. Now, what I find really fascinating is that God did not speak this garden into existence. Instead, the Bible says that he designed this garden and with his own hand planted it. Now, some translators have referred to, they've translated the Garden of Eden as the house of Pleasure. Why? Because everything within that garden, everything that Adam and Eve could see, everything that they could smell, everything that they could taste, everything that they could touch, everything that they could feel, everything that they could experience was perfectly designed by God to elicit pleasure. Amen to that. But it wasn't just a house of pleasure because of the pleasure they received from all the goodness that God had brought into that garden, but it was also a house of pleasure because that place was also a 
sanctuary. That was the place where they went to meet God. In fact, if you read Exodus chapter 25 and onward, whenever you read descriptions about the sanctuary, not sure if you knew this or not, but whenever you read them, you will discover if you're paying attention to the details that it's describing a garden. It's true. It's describing flowers. It's describing awe-inspiring nature. There's the candlesticks that represents the tree of life. So here, the Garden of Eden, not only was it a house of pleasure because everything that God planted in there was designed to give them pleasure, but it's also a house of pleasure because the very presence of God was there. How many want to say, sign me up for that place? That's where I want to be. (laughs) Me too. I want to be in that place, right? I mean, can you imagine what it must have been like for Adam and Eve living all those years in God's presence in this amazing place by the name of House of Pleasure? Oh, but then one day. A talking serpent begins spewing jealous venom. I've got the lies that he spewed in their directions. The first one, he says, God is restrictive. He said, did God really say you must not eat the fruit from any of the trees in the garden? In fact, God had said the complete opposite of that. God has said, actually, you can eat from any tree in the garden. There's thousands of different fruit here. You can have your pick of any of them. There's just one of them I want you to not touch. Do not partake of just one. Second of all, saying, God is alive. God says you're going to die. No. You won't die. God is a liar. He also said, God is self-serving. He said, God knows that your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat of it. In other words, God is really selfish. He knows that this is really good, but he wants to keep these good blessings from you. He wants to keep you young and dumb, as it were. God's restrictive. You don't want that in your life. And so her curiosity is aroused. It begins as doubt. It evolves into distrust. And it gives birth as disobedience. And now you're watching in slow motion. The serpent has made his satanic case so convincingly and the fruit is being displayed in his tail so beautifully and it seemed to hold so much promise and power that she receives it into her hands excitedly. The first bite. The surge of emotion. The sharing of the fruit. The exhilaration. The smiles. The seemingly endless possibilities. 
And the score to the music that was once so melodic and majestic turns dissonant and cruel. Cue the tritones. And you're watching. It's been bright, vivid, HD, color, and all of a sudden, as the implications of their sin begins to dawn on them, the screen scrubs into gray and dullness. I mean, not only was this horrible for their life, but this had universal implications. The fall, you've heard of that one. So what do you do? If you realize that you're living a life that you did not quite expect, what was Eve to do in that situation and Adam as they realized that their world was turned completely upside down? Principle number one. Remember that God promises to avenge and address the wrong that was done to you. Let me say that again. God promises to avenge and address the wrong that was done to you. So sin takes place. Adam and Eve turn tail and hide. But then all of a sudden enter the courtroom scene. Jesus is presiding as the judge and takes his seat. The victims, Adam and Eve, are commanded to approach the bench. The perpetrator, the devil-possessed serpent, is also commanded to come forward. Genesis 3, verse 14. Notice what the Bible says. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. So apparently, up until this moment, serpents could fly or walk. Apparently, up until this very moment, serpents had a much higher place in the hierarchy of animals in the animal kingdom. Because notice the punishment that is meted out by the judge in session. He says, no, from now on, it used to be like this for you, but from now on, you're going to eat dust. You're going to slither around on your belly for the rest of your life. Instead of being up here, now you're going to be the lowest among all the cattle. An evaluation of the findings is made by the judge and the punishment is rendered immediately. But then notice verse 15, fascinating, because what we see described there in Genesis chapter 3 verse 15 is nothing less than a mortal combat public spectacle. It's true. Notice what it says. Pick up your Bibles. Genesis chapter 3 verse 15. It says, And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers and he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. So notice what God is saying. Both the serpent 
is going to have a lineage, an offspring and descendants, but Eve is also going to have a lineage, an offspring and descendants. Then there's going to be a battle, though, between this serpent that has been alive all this time since the beginning, and this battle is going to be from someone that's going to come of the seed of Eve. By the way, it's the same word that's used in both cases. It says, he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Crush, strike. It's referring to the same word in the original, actually. But here's the question that I want to ask you. Can someone survive their heels being crushed? Yes or no? Yes. You can survive your heels being crushed, but guess what? You're going to bear the marks on your body for the rest of your life. No other way around it. Can someone survive their head being crushed, though? The implication of Scripture is that this is a deadly and a mortal wound. The head of the serpent is crushed. A man will come, born of the woman who is sent by God. And this Messiah who is going to come is going to destroy the works and the kingdom of the serpent. Who do you suppose this is referring to, this seed of the lineage of Eve? Jesus. Yeah, in fact, this, this promise here is referred to as the first gospel, the proto-evangelion. It's clearly a messianic prophecy and promise. But here's the question. How is it that Jesus dying on the cross and crushing the head of the serpent, or beginning the crushing anyway, how is it that that destroys the kingdom of darkness? Let's be clear on something. That Jesus did not beat the devil by a show of omnipotent force. Omnipotent, all-powerful. That's not how he beat the devil. No, in fact, it was the complete opposite of that. Jesus won the battle over darkness by a counterintuitive demonstration of love. Proving that the lies that the devil had been seeding all along since heaven were wrong. They were false. Notice how the American author Ellen White actually describes this. It says, Not until the death of Christ was the character of Satan clearly revealed to the angels or to the unfallen worlds. The arch apostate had so clothed himself with deception that even holy beings had not understood his principles. They had not clearly seen the nature of his rebellion. Are you catching that? Apparently, up until this very moment, there were some beings in the universe that were a little bit foggy. They weren't quite sure. They were wondering how this all works out, and they were wondering, could it be that maybe that what Lucifer is saying, maybe there's some truth to it after all. But at the cross, the entire universe finally saw a complete contrast between the prince of light and the prince of darkness. 
at the cross, the entire universe, finally understood the difference, the plottings of the evil one and the width and the length and the depth and the height of the love of God, Ephesians 3.18. In that one moment on the cross. In fact, that's why Jesus said, John 12, verse 38, He said, now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And I, if I'm lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself. Why is he saying this? Because up until this moment, Jesus is talking about his time on the cross. He's saying up until this moment, Lucifer had assumed the place of Adam as the seeming rightful prince of this world. Remember Job chapter 1 and 2 when this heavenly council is taking place and the sons of God come, this kind of celestial senate gathers. Who shows up as representing earth? Satan. He's like, oh, I was just in the neighborhood. Is Congress in session? Oh yeah, Uh, roll call. I'm representing earth. Yeah. But Jesus is saying at the cross, the ruler was cast out. Now I'm talking to someone today and there's been some wrong that was done to you. You were taken advantage of in some way. Maybe the person got away with it. Maybe they eluded the law. I want to bring you some good news. Jesus is going to personally avenge and address the wrong that was done to you. Maybe you feel helpless because of some sickness or circumstance that you are in right now. It feels like there's nothing that you can do. I've got some news for you. Have hope in the promise that God is going to personally avenge and address the wrong that was done to you. Maybe you've experienced the death of some loved one, your loved one, and you carry that hole in your heart. Guess what? The devil's going to pay Jesus is going to personally avenge and address the wrong that was done to you. So that's the first principle. That's the first thing I want you to do when you have an inkling that you're you're living in a place that you wouldn't have expected to be living. I want you to remember and have hope in that promise. That's what he told Eve. He said, I'm going to avenge this. Mark my words, Eve. I'm going to avenge this. Principle number two. Here's what I want you to do. You put into practice the promises of God. Let's talk about that. You put into practice the promises of God. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 22, verse 17. In Genesis chapter 22, we've got the story of Abraham offering his son Isaac 
Many are familiar with that story, offering him up for sacrifice. Now, the purpose in God asking him this was God wanted to give Abraham just a little bit of a sliver, a little bit of an inkling of an understanding of what it was going to mean, the gospel story, that God was going to send his son. And after Abraham was obedient, now God affirms his blessing. And notice what he says in verse 17. And I've I've got it in the King James Version because it's a little more accurate. Notice what it says in this particular instance anyway. It says that in blessing, I will bless thee and in multiplying, I will multiply thy seed as the stars of the heaven and as the sand which is upon the seashore and thy seed shall possess the gate of his enemies. Now, the word here for seed, some translations say offspring or descendant, is the same word, singular in both instances, that is used in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, in reference to the Messiah. So please listen up, church. Do not miss the implications of what is being said right now. First of all, by the way, how do we know that this is actually referring to Jesus? I mean, we don't have to guess. Notice what it says in the book of Galatians. It says, now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say, and two seeds. It's referring to this promise in Genesis twenty-two seventeen, 17, as referring to many, but rather to one and to your seed. Help me, church. That is, I didn't hear you. That is, that is the Messiah. In other words, here the apostle Paul is making the connection that this is referring to the Messiah. So here now it's saying, God told Eve, I'm sending a skull crusher. And he's going to tear down the kingdom of darkness. And now to Abraham, he says, I'm going to send someone, that same someone. He's going to tear down the gates. He's going to possess the gate of his enemy. Can I ask you a question? What's the purpose of a gate? Come on, don't miss this. Don't miss this. The purpose of a gate is to keep people either inside or to keep people blocked outside. So notice what God is saying. Notice what the Bible is saying, church. This is so amazing. Not only at the cross did Jesus tear down the kingdom of darkness, but he's saying, I took the gate entirely. The gate is mine. What do you think Jesus is going to do with the gate if he now owns it and possesses it? He's going to do the same thing that Samson, a type of Christ, did in Judges chapter 16. He took it off its hinges and he stamped it into a high hill. The gate is open. That's why Jesus said, you better not miss this church. You better not miss this. That's why Jesus said, if the sun sets you free, you're going to be free indeed. There's no gate trapping you in anymore. Jesus tore down the kingdom of the enemy. He ripped off the gate 
So here's the question. Do we have a role in the matter? Is there something that we do? Yes. Here's what you do. You practice. You put into practice the promise of God. Notice Joshua chapter 10, verse 24. So it was when they brought out those kings to Joshua that Joshua called for all the men of Israel and said to the captains of the men of war which went with him, come near, put your feet where? Put your feet on the necks of these kings. And they drew near and they put their feet on their necks. Then Joshua said, don't be afraid, nor be dismayed. Be strong and of good courage. Why? For thus the Lord will do to all your enemies against whom you fight. What's going on here? Not only was this a promise that was given to Adam and Eve, it was a promise that was given to all of Eve's descendants, to every single one of us. And God's people, that original promise became an echo that was incorporated and implemented. He said, every single one of you, your job is to lift up your heels because you're going to do some crushing as well. Your job as well is to do everything in your power to tear down the work of the enemy, period. All right, let me, let me put a little more uh, rubber on the road. Let, let's get a, even a little more practical. The gate is gone. You know what your responsibility is? Put on your boots. Jesus is at the gate. He's saying it's time to storm the gates of hell. It's time to free some captives. What do you say, church? That is your responsibility. That is my responsibility. Notice what Jesus said in Luke chapter 4, verse 18. He said, talking about his mission, but also our mission. He says, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. What good news could the poor possibly be receiving? Good news about money? Nope, although they need money. He's talking about good news that the kingdom of God is finally here and you can now have forgiveness for your sins. Jesus said, he's anointed me to to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners. Recovery of sight for the blind and for what? Help me out, church. To set the? Who? Yeah. All those people that the devil has been keeping in darkness. All those people that have believed the lies of the enemy. All those people that don't even know that a way was opened up for them already. It's your job. It's my job. Every single one of us together. This is what it means to be love on the move. We've been talking at Pioneer about, you know, we are called, we believe to be love on the move. This is what it means to be love on the move. You see, when, when you show kindness to someone, when you show love to someone, when you reveal the truth about what God is actually like, you're setting captives free. 
When you tell someone about the kindness and the love of Jesus, and I know we have to be all masked up, all of us these days when we're outside of our homes, but when you look at someone with love and kindness in your eyes and the other person recognizes it, you are revealing to them the love of God and thereby helping to tear down the kingdom of darkness. You practice the promise of God by metaphorically putting your foot on the neck of the devil, by setting captives free, by revealing to anyone you can what God is actually like. Can I share with you some really good news? If you have a pulse, you have a purpose. Uh, Let me say for those in the back, you didn't hear If you have a pulse, you have a purpose. I don't care how old you are. If you can send a text message, if you have breath within you, if you have a pulse, God says there's no retiring from my kingdom. You might be receiving your 401k. Hey, praise God, you got some of that. That's fine. You may have some of the pension money coming in. You might be 80 years old. You might be 90 years old. God bless you. That's fine. But God has not given you permission to retire from his army. You're not done. There's work yet to be done. You, 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 me. We got to do everything that we can to storm the gates of hell and to tear down his kingdom. I want to finish with a final promise. So here's the Apostle Paul writing to the church gathered in Rome. Now, Rome was experiencing some pretty bad persecution at the time. A lot of Christians dying. I remind you that it was in Rome where Paul ended up getting executed. But before that day came, he wrote a letter to the believers in Rome. You know, one of the last words he said to them, to that church that was under persecution, you know, one of the last words it is that he said to them, Romans 16, 20, he says, The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. What does that mean? It means that the church there at Rome was living life with this position in mind. They had their heels up. They're saying, I'm going to do whatever I can do. Yes, we're dying. Yes, our families are dying. Yes, we're being persecuted. Yes, we're being mowed down. But I'm not going to stop. I'm going to keep my feet at the neck of the devil. And notice what it says. Who is it that's going to do the crushing, though, church? Who is it that's doing Come on, help me. Who is doing the crushing? And the the God of peace, it doesn't say you're going to do the crushing. We don't have the power, but we do. We implement the promise as best as we can. We do what God told us to do. And the God of peace is going to crush 
Satan under your feet, but you better have your feet in the right place. 